Good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor. You can collect your medals for bravery at the end of this service. Please stay and have a cup of tea or coffee, if nothing else, to warm you up before you head off home after the service. Our service will be led by our Minister Katrina, and everything we need to follow the service will be both on our order of service and on the screen. Then this evening at 7pm, evening worship will be held in Wellington Church, and this will be a special service for the Week of Prayer for Christian Unity. Our call to worship this morning are some words that were spoken by Jesus to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who was a devout man, who had some puzzling questions that he wanted to ask of Jesus, and so he came by night to see him. Jesus said this, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved. Our opening hymn this morning is one that seems to divide people, those who love it and those who loathe it, and I'm in the love camp. God is love, his the care. And if you're able, you're invited to stand as we sing.
So we come to God in prayer. As usual, I will lead us in prayer and then we will join together in the Lord's Prayer in our own most familiar version. So let's pray together. Mysterious God, beyond naming or numbering, we worship you as one we cannot fully know, yet by whom we are fully known. We adore you as one we cannot fully love, yet in whose love we find life. We sing that you are love, that you are good, that you are truth, that you are beauty. Not just qualities that you have, but they are your very essence. And this blows our minds. God, who is love, we thank you for our everyday experiences of love, however imperfect. For parents, children, grandchildren, for colleagues and friends, for lovers and life partners, for laughter shared, squabbles resolved, Intimacy enjoyed, security experienced, all hints of your immeasurable love. God, who is good, we know that we aren't always good, even by our own standards. We can be selfish or greedy, rude or arrogant. We can choose hurtful actions or ignore gentle ones. For the moments we have failed in our endeavours to be good, we are sorry and ask you to forgive us. God, who is truth, in a world of fake news, we may ask with Pontius Pilate, What is truth? We can be lured by charismatic speakers or misled by those we thought we could trust. Yet, if we listen quietly to our own hearts, our own consciences, we hear the voice of your spirit reminding us of what is loving, good and full of truth. God, who is beauty, who declared all creation to be good, who entrusted it to the care of humankind and continues to redeem and sustain it. As those whom you love and in whom you delight, we join our prayers together with countless others who also seek the fulfilment of your kingdom as we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us 
Today we're going to think a little bit about aspects of love and I just put up one of the plethora of love is cartoons that you can pull down off the internet. This one says love is a flight of fancy. That could be interpreted as slightly cynical actually, couldn't it? It's just something, but I quite like the, the heart made out of the birds. But we're going to start not with what love is, but what love is not. So I wonder if you can tell me what love is not or what love does not. Carl. Love does not hate. Love is not hate. That's true. Good. That's a good starter. Love is happiness. So what is love not? Unhappiness. Yeah. So we want to try and think of the things it's not before we think of the thing it is. But great, great one. Thank you, Christine. Love is not unhappiness. Love is not jealous. Love is not jealousy. Yep, good. Love is not selfish. Good. Love is not indifferent. That's a good one, Lena. I don't think I've heard that one before, but yeah. Okay.
Kate. Try to think of the negatives at the moment, Christine, and we'll come back to the positives in a minute. It's a, it's a really good one, but we're just trying to do the negatives first. What it's not. Possessive. Love is not possessive. Good. Love is not Love is not an enemy. Absolutely. Very good. Thank you. Love is not limited. These are brilliant, really brilliant. Any more? Do you want to say one? No? Okay, so we can move on to some of the love is ones. And, and Christine, you said love is bliss, which is a great one. What else is love? What do you want to say if love is? Yes, Carl. Something you give away and not possess. Okay, something you give away and not possess. That's a thoughtful one. Thank you. Any others? Love is joyful. Love is joyful, that's good. Happiness, yep. Family. Sorry? Family. Yes, that's a good one. Love is something that should be given in return. Love is something that should be given in return for love. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. So you don't hold on to it, you, you, you share it. Yeah, that's good. All sorts of good things. Love is not getting stressed out. <laughs> Please don't worry. If he needs to bang the doors, that's fine, because sometimes that's all I want to do on a Sunday morning. So the Apostle Paul, when he was thinking about love, he came up with his lists, and I would have to say they're not as creative or as thoughtful, I think, in some ways, as yours. But this is what Paul said love isn't, and I think we've got most of them. He said it's not envious, so that's, it's not jealous, it's not boastful, it's not arrogant, it's not rude, it's not irritable, it's not resentful, not self-centered and it doesn't rejoice in the wrong so that's quite a, a quite a tall order isn't it because who sometimes feels irritable yeah okay who sometimes feels a bit jealous most people who has ever been told that they're arrogant <laughs> a few people Who's ever been rude? Yeah. Who has ever thought, ha, 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 when something's gone wrong for somebody else? <laughs> Jeff's straight in there. That... <laughs> Maybe that's a CB after church one, Jeff. <laughs> so we all know that we're not perfect in our love. Of course we're not, because we're human beings. Love in all of us is a work in progress. And of course we mess up sometimes. But that's why what Paul says about love, what it is, is equally important. He says it's patient, so it keeps on trying. It's kind, kind to itself and kind to others. Sometimes we're really hard on ourselves and we need to be reminded to love ourselves, to be kind to ourselves. It rejoices in the truth. It likes good things. And this is the, the really thing. It, he, he puts all things on the end of these things. It bears all things, so it, it keeps on putting up with stuff. It believes all things. It's trusting. It hopes all things. It always is, is looking forward in, in hope. It endures all things, back to putting up with everything, um, and it doesn't end. And, and these are things that I think we all know, but it's good to remind ourselves of and great to add on the extra ideas that we've come up with this morning. God loves us and our love is full of hope and trust and hopefully it doesn't end. So we're going to sing one of my favourite little songs about love now um, that reminds us that God loves us whoever we are and however we behave.
Thanks, Paul. Testament reading this morning comes from Hosea chapter 11 verses 1 to 9 When Israel was a child I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son The more I called them, the more they went from me They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to idols Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk I took them up in my arms But they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. And I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria shall be their king. Because they have refused to return to me, the sword rages in their cities, it consumes their oracle priests, and devours because of their schemes. My people are bent in turning away from me. To the Most High they call, but he does not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you the Arma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me, my compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. 
for I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. The New Testament reading is from Luke, Luke 15 and verses 11 to 32. We've been here before this month, I feel. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property among them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and travelled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? And here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But when he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. And then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the robe, the best one, and put it on him, and put a ring on on, on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate now his elder son was in the field and when he came in and approached the house he heard music and dancing he called one of the slaves and asked what was going on he replied your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound then he became angry and refused to go in His father came out and began to plead with him. He answered his father, Listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who had devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we, will co- we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Amen.
I guess I should start today's sermon with a little bit of a caveat because I've never been a parent and so I have got no way of understanding from the inside what parental love for one's child or children is like. I can only draw on what I have experienced as a daughter, both as a child and as an adult, and what I've observed in others and what I've read in books. That doesn't make my experience and reflections invalid, but it does mean that they have an inevitable partiality shaped and limited by that experience. As I was thinking about today's service, I kept recalling, or actually misrecalling, um, something in a book called Grief is the Thing with Feathers. It's, it's a novel. Um, it's a story of a father and his two sons who work their way through grief following the sudden death of the mother. Sounds a bit gloomy. Um, actually, I think it's a very beautiful book, and at the time I read it, helped me to work through some of my own unresolved grief. So here's a quotation from that book. Yes, she said, before she was dead. We don't want our baths, our bums are clean. We both had a bath last night. Fine, she said, straight to bed for stories. Yes, she said, before she was dead. We don't want our baths, our bums are clean. We both had a bath last night. Well, she said, no bath, no stories. You decide. A mother loves her two sons and they rebel ever so slightly against her rules and she has to decide how she will respond. What's the loving thing to do? Is there a correct response? And why are we, the reader or the hearer, left to decide? Context, circumstance, our own past experience, all of these will shape our response. The truth is often there is no one correct response, but instead a range of good enough options. If the mother in the story could have known that this was her last night on earth, would it have made a difference to her choices? The genius of this example, and I think the genius of the book, is it doesn't give us answers, but actually illustrates the messiness of life. As Walter noted, we have already heard this parable twice this month and we will hear it again next week. And today we're going to look at it from the perspective of the father. And I want to start by noting that although we traditionally interpret that character as God in terms of the symbolism of the story, within the story itself he clearly is not God Because the younger son, when he returns home, says to his father, I have sinned against you and against God. So in reflecting on the father, I'm going to treat him as fully human. And if you want to extend any of that to your understanding of God, then by all means, feel free to do so. So 
So let's start to unpack something about what we might mean by parental love, or at least some of its attributes. Parental love is sometimes said to be unconditional, with no strings attached, that there is nothing that can destroy it. And certainly that is the ideal. It's what we recognise in God. But human frailty and human sin can make our own experience very different as parents and as children. I think sometimes unconditional love is misunderstood as love without expectations, a love that will never challenge attitude or actions, a love that allows its recipients to be totally self-centred or narcissistic rather than learning how to love. Parental love may be, or may aspire to be, unconditional. But it is also nurturing, teaching and training. Parental love enables children to develop the attributes of love, the things we talked about earlier, to grow and mature into independent adults, able to build relationships and live full lives. And somewhere between the two extremes, on one hand, of overprotection that stunts the maturing of healthy adults, and on the other, the neglect that fails to nurture its children adequately, is a middle ground that we might call good enough parental love. Good enough parental love is resilient and adaptable. Its expression and its expectations will change over time as babies become children and then youths and finally adults. From a totally dependent infant to a fully independent adult, that love continues, but the relationship changes. Over time, we should move from adult-child relationships to adult-adult relationships. But then, as the saying goes, your mammy is still your mammy, however old you are. Certainly, my mum is still my mum, and she'll remind me of it. Parental love is risky. It's costly. Because no matter how good it is, it doesn't come with any guarantees. Rebellion, outside influences, illness, tragedy, any of these and more can lead parents to doubt themselves. But as the illustration in the novel suggests, we can only make our best call at the time. We weigh up the situation and we make a choice that we think is the best. That's all we can do. And I'd like to suggest that this risky, costly love is what we see both in the Old Testament reading from Hosea and in the parable. Hosea is not an easy read. There is an enacted parable of the relationship between Israel and Yahweh that sees Hosea marry a woman who he knows will be unfaithful, yet he must love her, and he will love her despite the pain and the sorrow. God's anger and disappointment in his people and the consequences of their actions are spelled out all too clearly in this book. And in the midst of that, and as part of what Walter read for us, 
it's almost as if God pauses and remembers a happier time. Way back, God held the hand of the child Israel, or Ephraim, as he learned to walk. And it is the most beautiful image of a toddler and his father. The tottering steps and the tumbles. The grazed knees kissed better. The wonder of new discoveries, perhaps seeing a butterfly for the first time. And those why questions. Why do snails have shells? Why do I have to go to bed? Whatever it is. The things that are shared together by a father and son, the laughter and the tears and the tantrums. And this beloved child, so carefully nurtured, has rebelled, rejected the values of his father, and now there are inevitable consequences which are painful for everybody. And he's angry. Should he punish his child... Should he let events run their course? Should he even reject his child? And what God says is this. I cannot turn away. I cannot. Unconditional love, inextinguishable love, moves him from anger to tenderness, from repulsion to reconciliation. Whilst what is done cannot be undone, there is still hope that in the end, all can be well. So what happens if we take those ideas from Hosea and allow them to reshape a telling of the parable of the the sons from the perspective of the father? So I'm going to try to do that. I'm going to try to enter the place of the father and tell his story. What more could a man want? Two boys, strong, healthy, bright, funny. I felt so blessed when each of them was born, when we chose their names and began to dream dreams about their futures. My firstborn... Well, of course, he was my heir, the one to whom one day, hopefully a long way off, I would bequeath my land, my flocks, my herds, my household. He was an earnest child, eager to please me and keen to learn what I had to teach him. Only very occasionally did he give me any concern. It wasn't often that I needed to reprimand him and even fewer times that I worried about his future. He was a good boy, polite, willing, responsible. Loving him was easy, it was undemanding. I never felt the need to tell him I loved him or to reward him, because surely he must know. My younger son was very different. I had different expectations of him and different dreams for him. Perhaps I was a bit easier on him, allowing him the same privileges as his older brother, but without the expectations. And perhaps, yeah, he did always feel he was playing second fiddle, nothing he could do that big brother hadn't already done. 
Certainly, he was the challenging one, asking questions, testing boundaries, and getting into scrapes. Loving him was hard work. My patience was tried, and I was never sure whether I was a good enough father as I contemplated the stick and the carrot in the response to his behavior. Still, they grew up and they began to spread their wings, seeking independence in their own ways. The older boy seemed pretty content with his lot. He honed his skills in farming. He learned how to manage the employees and the servants. He worked hard and he made me proud. But the younger one, while he became increasingly unsettled, he wanted to go travelling to explore faraway places. Had he lived in a different age, he might have said he wanted a gap year or to find himself, whatever that means. There wasn't a week went by that he didn't come to me with some scheme, some plan that needed his share of the inheritance and right now. I was really torn. To refuse would almost certainly lead to resentment and rebellion. But to agree was risky. I wasn't at all convinced he was mature enough to manage his money, let alone go travelling. What should I do? What was the loving response? I came to the conclusion that I should let him go. It was so hard. I was terrified for him. I couldn't stop thinking about him, wondering what he was doing and whether he was safe. It gnawed away inside me. It stole my joy. And to my shame, I withdrew from my wife and my older son. And of course, there were consequences of that. My relationship with my older son became very tense and strained. I loved him. But he was hurting, resentful, and I didn't know how to respond. So we settled into an uneasy pattern of coexistence. And then it all came to a head one day, the day my younger son came home. Yeah, he had been wayward and foolish and selfish, but he was alive and he was home. I couldn't contain my joy. I ran down the road to greet him and threw my arms round him. Nothing was too good. The finest clothes, the best food, music, dancing. Perhaps I too was prodigal, extravagant, squandering so much. But this surely was what love demanded. My older boy didn't think so, though. When he eventually arrived home from work, he was livid. And all the hurt that had built up tumbled out unchecked. I winced as the allegations cut me to the core. I hadn't realised just how angry he was or how taken for granted he felt. So many squandered opportunities to have listened to him, to have asked what was troubling him. Perhaps he felt that my love hadn't been good enough after all. So where do we go from here? As a father, I've always done my best, have always made my decisions with integrity. 
Sometimes those choices haven't turned out to be in the best, haven't been as mature as I'd have wished. It seems I'm still learning what love is and what it isn't. I've learned that love is costly, that it has a price, if you like, that it requires patience, generosity, forgiveness and a whole lot more whilst at the same time risking rejection, rebellion, resentment and ridicule. I've also begun to grasp the truth of what unconditional love is. Love for myself, even when I mess up. Love for my sons, different as they are. And love for the God who never ever gives up on us and whose love is vast, unending and secure. As scripture tells us, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Or, in paraphrase, maybe something like this. God's love for the cosmos is so intense. God's grace so anarchic. God's generosity so outrageous that it is squandered in the life and death of his only son who entered creation to transform it from within. What price love? For God, everything. That everything might be saved. Amen. And so we sing of that amazing love of God that is with us in all the times, good and bad. O oh, love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee.
I invite us to join together in a time of silent prayer for our world. Let us pray. Into this stillness we bring our concerns for the world and for those closest to us. God of love, we offer you our love, our love expressed in gifts of money, in gifts of time, in gifts of our abilities, and in gifts above all 
of our love. In the name of Christ. Amen. Our closing hymn, um, Paul and I think is probably Welsh. Jeff may be able to advise us on that one. Um, It's one that some of us have known since childhood, but doesn't appear in any Baptist hymn book I can find. But hey, (coughs) it's a wonderful hymn that sings of the love of Jesus. So we stand, if we can, as we sing. whose love is unending, the Christ whose redemption is continuing, and the Spirit whose wisdom is transforming, be with us 
and with all people, now and always. Mm -hmm.